Hi, I'm Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome back to 15-Minute Film Fanatics, a podcast where two lifelong friends and film fans sit down and talk about movies that they've seen separately but are going to talk about now for the first time. So we've been on a great streak where Mike has been making all the picks for the movies. And this time we're going to talk about The Conversation, which is Francis Ford Coppola's movie he made between the Godfathers. And we have not had a conversation about this yet, have we, Mike? Nope. We have not. And so one thing that uh, after I texted Mike and said, well, I just watched it again. Uh, Mike said, well, what did you think? And I said, save it for the pod. So we'll save it for the pod now. All Mike texted back was, I love this movie as four different sentences. <laughs> so let's do our usual opening thing. Mike, why do you love period, this period, movie period? Okay. So first, I think it's um, my uh, perverse love for lost things. I think it's just, just personal. I think because it came out between Godfather part one um, and part two, and, and essentially was abandoned by Francis Ford Coppola in the editing. By the time this movie was shot, they had started shooting Godfather Part Two, which um, Ford Coppola uh, correctly thought would be his uh, magnum opus, or at least right. in the running for his magnum opus. So he dropped the conversation, actually let Walter Murch uh, finish, finish the editing um, and sound design. So I think part of it is its abandonment um, and the fact that not, not many people know it. So, of course, I've had this conversation over and over, which is, you know, people tell me that The Godfather is one of their favorite films, um, is a perfect film, as we've discussed on this podcast. But what I say is, well, if you haven't seen the conversation, you're in for a treat, because I think that this is absolutely uh, a beautiful movie beginning to end. And the end is so, uh, we'll get to this in the third segment of the podcast, sure. the ending is so beautiful that it stayed with me um, from the very moment I saw it as one of the most recognizable to me scenes um, in film. It's funny you said beautiful twice there because it is beautiful from the first shot where, where it's going down, you know, that long 70s style of credits. Mm -hmm. When it finally gets down, you realize what's being, what, but it, there, is, there is a very, um, there's a lot of elegance to this movie and especially in that last scene too, but there's a lot of elegance to it. There's elegance in the screenplay. And it's funny because there's a lot of elegance about somebody who's very inelegant. You know, Absol Harry's very absolutely. inelegant. Um, I, you know, I think, from the actual performances, people you don't expect to pop up in, in, yeah. in films yeah. that, that all of a sudden you're like, wait, didn't I see you in Young Frankenstein? Or and, Harrison you know, Ford, Harrison Ford as, as playing the role of Waylon Smithers to Robert Duvall's Mr. Burns. And when the minute when it's revealed that the boss is Robert Duvall, what a great reveal. What a great um, moment, what a great you, moment. You, it, that's like um, when uh, What's-His-Face shows up in Seven, you know, yeah. as the villain. Yeah, um, it's, Kevin Spacey, it's sure. beautiful, uh, but I think that one of the things that you touched on is that this movie just has really everything that I am as a viewer I'm looking for. It has shots um, so composed that um, as we mentioned uh, on the podcast um, when we did um, uh, a, a couple of films back, uh, shots where you go, oh wow, I wouldn't have thought to, to film it this way. Yeah. Elements of Walter Murch in film sound who, I mean, if you don't know who Walter Murch is, we'll, we won't cover it here, just look, up. look it up. M-U-R-C-H um, deserves the, the Presidential Medal of Freedom in my, in my personal opinion. <laughs> um, misdirection, you know, on, yeah. from, from director, from screenwriter uh, to viewer. And uh, so I just really from composition to the actual acting to the screenplay, this is um, a movie where the bones are good, uh, but perhaps the execution is even better. You know, this, this movie works on paper, but certainly it works on celluloid. Yeah, I mean, it could have been, you could, you could actually imagine somebody that this could have been a great short story. Absolutely. You could, you could, it's got a very certain literary quality to it, right? And, it, and uh, again, going back to this idea about how it's, um, it's very human, and we talked about The Verdict, and how that's, that's a movie about, about real people, and your thing in The Verdict was, um, you said, uh, you know, when's the last time you saw a movie where the judge was an actual character? 
And I, and I think that this movie, like everyone in it's a character. Yes. Right? I, like everybody, everybody that's in the movie, everybody that walks into, right down to Harrison Ford, <laughs> you know, as the, uh, as the, uh, the yes man for, for Robert Duvall, everyone in it's for the director, everyone in it's a character. And you know what struck me about that was that Harry is such an interesting guy. And I'll get more to, to a, a revelation I think I had about him in segment two. But what was so interesting is that um, he, it, this is a movie and a person who takes religious faith seriously. That scene where he goes into the confessional, I mean, that's not ironic. A lot of directors would have made that ironic, but he's really troubled and you really get a sense of that from his performance. Yes, um, you, all, you get the sense also that he's, that he's locked in, meaning I think that what makes it so beautiful, the reason it can't be ironic is because um, if you look at his life, he has a need to live above board, a religious spiritual need to live above board, but he has an absolute imperative to live below board. Not yeah. to come up, not to come up at all. So unless that is a real impulse coming from the the furthest depths of him, um, that that would be in balance. But the fact that it's an imbalance is, I think, what creates such an interesting character. Yeah, he, I mean, he wants to have his cake and eat it too. He 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 wants to remain aloof and divorced from the repercussions of his actions. But at the same time, in you know, long before the film begins, Harry knows that there's a problem with that. Hence, his going to confession after the first people got killed because of his previous job and stuff like that. So I take it that like, it, like that conflict started long before the film began, you know, David Mamet, who we, we talk about a lot in here, he said, you know, you want to enter every scene late and leave it early. And I think this movie enters late, if that makes any sense, like absolutely it's long established. And I think that one of the, you know, one of the senses that I had that um, was borne out by Francis Ford Coppola himself uh, was that uh, he said, working with Gene Hackman was great. But one of the interesting things about this film is that, um, uh, Hackman came to the set a little bit cranky, I think, because he was playing somebody who was so vastly different than him, himself. He was a real movie star, upstanding, good-looking, well-dressed guy, um, and they they dressed him in these oversized pants and the these terrible raincoats. Rain yeah. Um, the the glasses though and the mustache are brilliant. They say it all. They yeah. are. Those glasses now are ones that hipsters would wear if they were on the Geek Squad for Best Buy. <laughs> and, and, and until you watch the whole movie, like you, you just accept it. Like, well, he's he's a guy that goes around bugging people. Like, of course, he's going to have those glasses. But literally watch, bugging them. Yeah. When you watch whatever, right? Literally. But when you watch the rest of the film, you realize just how how nerdish he is and how, and how and how out of place he is, both with his clothes and with his personality. Like, like for example, the scene with Miss um, Evangelista, the landlady. Yes. When she leaves the bottle of wine, that that scene goes on longer than you would expect it to because he just keeps grilling her and grilling her about I don't have anything personal well if there were a fire I wouldn't want anything and it just goes because he's so um he's so pained in his regular life and his clothes reflect that but I think um that's also part of the part of the appeal for me you know so uh, of course we've done um podcasts on the godfather part one and part two uh, uh for for our series but I, there's some perverse sense in me where, um, you know, given all the strong characters like uh, Michael dominating, like if if you were, if you were like, hey, there's a, the guy uh, made another movie, but it's only Fredo. Are you interested in that? Are you interested in only Fredo? And of course, there's just something in me that says, yes, absolutely. Like, where could I sign? You know, right? Exactly. You know. And I think watch, that, that if you had if you had to watch a um, like a, a a reality TV show where the camera followed Michael around or Fredo around, you'd pick Fredo because Michael I, I would, would just yeah. sit and stare at everybody. And you wouldn't be able to think it, but Fredo would be dropping things and like, you know, he'd be ordering the wrong things on Amazon and making mistakes and like having, having hissy fits and stuff like that. And, and I'll say that the brilliant thing about uh, the character of Harry Calls that every single time that he drops his guard, bad things do happen. So you're, yeah. you're, intended, you're intended to listen to his uh, conversation, his conversation, the conversation with his landlady and think, what a 
jerk. Yeah. And then of course, you know, he invites the the person back to his to his home and he loses the tapes. Well, that's actually that's actually okay. involved in my moment for segment two. Okay, so, so we'll here. we'll just move on to segment two. All right, I'll see you there. All right. Okay, welcome back. In our second segment, we like to talk about a key scene or or big moment indicative of the themes as a whole. Dan, I know you have one that you want to start out with. Yeah, it ties it ties into what you just said in segment one. So here's here's my moment, and it's a moment of you know it's about me, the viewer, as much as it is about the film. My moment is when he wakes up the next morning and realizes that the 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 hooker took his tapes, and and here's the process I went through, and I think I was totally played by Coppola in this. My first gut reaction was. There's no way he would have fallen for that. There's no way he would have fallen for them, for uh, Moran putting his pen in his pocket and then tape recording it. And that's, it makes a great scene where he's really vulnerable and, they, and he plays the tape and he's embarrassed, stuff like that. Like he fell for that. And then he fell for, for, for having her sleep over and then he wakes up like, how could he fall for that? There's no way. But then my thought was, wait a minute, no, that's the point is that he's out of his league, is that he's, he, the movie is a man scrambling, kind of like trying to get out of a well. He was once really good at it, but he's not that good at it anymore. He's almost like the Polonius of, of wiretapping or, or of, of bugging or of surveillance. And that occurred to me, I'm like, no, that's not a mistake. We're used to a movie where the Gene Hackman character would be a pro. He would be like James Bond or Tom Cruise, a Mission Impossible or something, right? But he's not. And that's what gives the movie its drama, is he's not a high-tech wizard. Well, I, what I take from his lifestyle as well is that um, you mentioned his uh, obvious Catholicism before. And I think that there's a dividing line of when he used to be good at it. I think the film tells you exactly when he stopped being good at it is when he found out that those people were murdered, murdered yeah. uh, on, on his job. Meaning I think that there's a certain, you can track in the way that people talk about him as a professional, a certain uh, upward curve. And if you yeah. want to know the the point where where it plays down, it's where he used to do technique for technique's sake before I think it was an element of his life that was outside of his morality. And he gets caught before the film even starts in a moment where it, it can no longer be outside of his morality. They must overlap. And that's where the, the tension in him comes from. That may even be where he, when he starts going to church again, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. You know. I don't think it's intended to, to be part of it. But for me, that's where my, my mind goes. Yeah, I, so that was, my, that was my confession, since we're talking about going to confession here. My confession was that um, Coppola made a mistake in his character, but then I realized that I made the mistake because that's the point of the film is that, and, and it's, it's dramatized beautifully at the ending, which we'll save for the ending. But what was your moment? What was your big revealing moment watching it this time? Um, I have uh, so many moments from this that I love, but I- <laughs> You always cheat. You always <laughs> cheat at, on the moment segment. I do, but uh, this time I won't cheat. I'll, I'll pick one. It's when uh, he is listening to what he thinks is the murder um, in the hotel room next to him, and he essentially just loses it in the Yeah, in let's the talk about that. What do you because, make Because, uh, so- the movie expertly moves between objective information and subjective information moves between diegesis, what's going on in the film, what's going on in, in Harry's brain. And obviously the, the murder scene with what's revealed later is what's going on in, in Harry's brain, in his mind. And uh, to your point, you made, a, you made a brilliant point about how it would be shot today. Um, yeah. Let me say that there's, there's all these reveals where audiences think that they wanna be close to the information. They, they want sure. they want the reveal and Harry's uh, uh, Harry's world being close to the reveal is too psychologically uh, terrifying it's it's um, it's something that you glimpse uh, only with horror you know it's not a it's not a suspenseful moment that 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 scene is not a payoff 
where you right. find out what's going to happen to them or what's not going to happen to them. Um, and I think that the movie does a really, really good job being vertiginous, making me dizzy uh, as a viewer, you know, trying to keep up with Harry in the next room, trying to listen to what's going on over there. Yeah, the payoff is ironic because the payoff is that Cindy Williams isn't dead. <laughs> like that's the payoff. And then the payoff is a giant question mark for the viewer. You're like, wait, what's going on, right? So then you would take it that you, you can't tell at that moment whether the blood in the toilet is, is real or not. Is, is that him? Uh, it's, I, believe it's, I believe it's in his mind. It's the, you know, uh, it's the all, to tie into your moment before, it's all the blood um, that possibly is, is yeah. the result of jobs that he's done coming out and he literally cannot keep it down anymore right okay that that, that makes that makes perfect sense what's another moment because we still have a little time in segment two what's another moment you love in this movie i thought that that whole trade show scene where he's talking to moran is unbelievably perfect um yeah. perfect acting um perfect staging the lines are great um everybody's slime like the perfect thing about harry call is um in, in any other movie shot today, you would really have a connection to your main character. You'd love your main character and you'd think, oh, well, this guy, the, the Moran character is a little too slick, a little too annoying. Yeah. But in this movie, it's perfect because everybody's annoying. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's, revealed, it's revealed that his former assistant is working the booth, which is right. just um, as perfect. Yeah. And it's so, and like, there you get a shot of, uh, of how vulnerable Harry is because he's kind of like his feelings are hurt. Absolutely. Um, right. And you, I, 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 it's something that I don't think he would expect. So you, he and the viewer find out at the same time that he's going to be hurt by that. One more question for segment two here while we're talking about it. Yeah. What did this, how did this film strike you in the age of Alexa and in the age of like the things we, we think about now in terms of surveillance and, and, and cookies in our browsers and, and our it's, browsing it's, history? It's unbelievably timely, but it's not more timely than when it first came out. So uh, viewers may not know that the film was written, the screenplay was written in the middle 60s, uh, but it came out just before Richard Nixon resigned. Right. It came out three or four weeks before um, Richard Nixon resigned. And so uh, a movie about surveillance and using actual um, techniques that were used uh, during the Watergate buggings yeah. uh, came out right before the, the scandal broke open and, and Nixon resigned. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny, like today, you don't even need like that opening, uh, the opening sequence when um, I think it's I think it's a uh, taped recorder number two, whatever, when the guy has the sniper microphone, we're used to watching movies, we're like, oh, it's a guy in a building with a gun, like, <laughs> like, that's what happens in movies. And we realize it's not a gun, but it's something that can be, you know, quite deadly. And right. uh, now it might today, as well be. Yeah, and now today we invite with our phones and with our computers with Alexa, and we invite the gun into our house. Absolutely. Well, everybody thinks it's funny. Uh, hacking is cool until somebody hacks a pacemaker, and then it's suddenly less funny. Yeah. All right, I'll see you in segment three. All right. We're going to pause here because we just want to tell you something. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. So let me explain. The first point is it's free. Yeah. Second, they have all the tools that you need to create, record, and edit your podcast right on your phone or your laptop. Third, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so you can hear it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other places. You pick up sponsorships, you can make money from your podcast, and there's no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Always be closing, Mike. Always be closing. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. So welcome back to segment three, where we talk about the ending or the title. So uh, Mike, you said before that you love the ending so much. So what is it about the ending that you love? And then I have a, I have a secret question for you. Uh, to your point, I think um, there's a certain kind of short story. Um, you mentioned it being like a, a short story yeah. having a literary quality. I think of Richard Yates. There are certain people that really dramatize loneliness 
um, in such a beautiful way with, with written language. Um, I never expected anybody to capture it uh, the way that it's captured on film right. um, at, the, at the ending of this movie, right? Uh, what people ask for in a, in a revelatory moment is that the character is laid bare. And the best thing about the ending of this film is that Harry literally lays himself bare uh, yeah. to the viewer because he knows there's a bug. He can't find the bug. He's being listened to. He's being watched. He can't find it. And the only way to find it is literally to rip open everything that he has until he doesn't have anything. You know, I, in, in other words, I think that there's a moment when you watch the film diachronically the first time, you, you might think um, that playing the saxophone along with blues records is cool. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say yeah. that there's 10% of viewers that think that's a cool hobby. I thought until so. Until you get to the ending scene and you see what exactly what a lonely hobby it is versus yeah. playing with other musicians. Yeah, he's um, not in the band. It's, he's not in the band. Uh, he could never be in the band. He can't form enough connections to be in the band. He's, yeah. just, he's just one man and a machine, a sound machine. And it, uh, that is unbelievably inextricably clear at the end of this film. Yeah, it reminded me of a Jack Lemmon's character in Glengarry Glen Ross says, a man is his job. A man is his job. And that's a big man theme, but it's also true in this. I mean, that is the logical progression to a life spent wiretapping and a life spent bugging and all those things that he, be, he, he hollows himself out. And at the end, you know, he's not playing that saxophone for the love of music. It's, it's, he, he's given up. So you, of course, noticed at the end, I'm sure you did how, you know, that the, the camera goes like a security camera. Mm -hmm. At the end, it pans left to right. Well, back to my point I asked you earlier about the pen and about the prostitute. So are we supposed to assume as the viewer that, that um, the director or Harrison Ford used Moran's device on Gene Hackman at the end? Because remember, he, call, he says the way the device works at the trade show, you call once and you never say anything and then they hang up, there's no one there and then they call again and that's exactly what happens at the end. Um, I took it that the bug is possibly in his saxophone. I think it's in the, the one thing that he would never throw away. Right. And then it's it's illustrated for me, but I mean they're supposed they're yeah. supposed to be they're supposed to be one, um, and even he you know as Harry demonstrates he's a surveillance expert, but he still falls for the, yeah. um, you know the the prostitute trick for that's you know, what I for, thought for the, the for the contract. So I thought it must be in the in the saxophone or in the case or in something that he he wouldn't throw away. Yeah. All right. That's, that's interesting too. I, was, I thought it was in the saxophone or someplace like that. But I think, I think thematically or in terms of his character works that it would work perfectly that the enemy, so to speak, they hire Moran and they use Moran's device and Harry doesn't realize it. Like Something like that. Like the time, like he's a guy out of, out of his time element, you know? It's, yeah. It's, and I think that the, the point is that um, Moran is the kind of person who would have no qualms. So the only difference between Harry and Moran is that uh, Harry, when he's realized that his surveillance has killed people in the past, loses his powers. He loses his yeah. ability to do it. Um, and Moran, even though he may not be as good uh, as Harry is because he doesn't care, it makes yeah. him better. Moran's he, not he, he retains his edge. No, yep, and he's that's not. How he gets, that's how he gets his edge, right? I mean, do you want, you want to build the next Alexa or not? Like, this is, this is what it takes. So what you have to be able to do. So here's my secret question for you about the ending. About, so um, when you read about some, you know, films online, people have a lot of opinions just like us, hence our podcast, right? Um, I read some divided critical opinion when the, of original reviews when it first came out that accused Coppola of cheating. And the cheat is that, of course, that great moment where you hear Sidney Williams say, um, he'd kill us if he had the chance. Now that's different than he'd kill us if he had the chance. And then yes. he'd kill us if he had the chance. Now that's two different recordings of the actress saying that. 
right? When you get to the, the, the more important one, the psychological reveal, and he kill us if he had the chance, is supposed to mean they, they created the car accident and they, you know, they mm -hmm. did all that. to get. So do you think that that's cheating, that Coppola did two different recordings of her saying that? Absolutely not. Yeah, the, the difference is that the audience has to be prepared for what we were talking about before in the scene where he's in the hotel, which is that the, the actual diegesis of what's in the film can become subjective, can become non-diegetic at, at any time. Once the rules of the film uh, are laid out, and, and I think that, that that first scene is is what's intended to prepare you for that, which is you may catch it, you may not catch all of it, um, you know, and, and then the recordings themselves are open to interpretation. And so I think anybody who's not understanding or listening to the rules has no right to uh to accuse Coppola of cheating what do you think well i happen to have written down in advance of our recording what i thought you would say <laughs> and i have it right here it says you're not supposed to know it's all subjective that's the point after the hotel scene you are in harry's brain so i think i think we got pretty good and i and i you know the joke Nailed is not i agree with you i think i don't think it's cheating i think that it's supposed to be that you don't even know if if her us He'd kill us if he had the chance. You're not even supposed to know as a, as a viewer of the movie if that's really in there or if he just overhears it. The same way that like, you know, when you're in an emo, it reminded me of this. Um, you're in a highly emotional state. Uh, you're in seventh grade and something um, terrible happened at school. You got, you got in trouble at school in your math class and you get walk in the front door and your mother looks at you and goes, that was school today. And the first thing you think is, oh, she knows. She, no, she, she knows, right? Because your emotion is, is, is uh, interfering with your reception of that neutral thing. So he can't listen to her, those tapes anymore without being super paranoid that there's something on them, right? Yeah, I think some people um, wanna watch movies that have italics in them to let them know when, when to pay attention and movies don't have italics, you just need to pay attention. Just like life. And I think the, the great thing about the movie is Harry starts to italicize words that might not be italicized, right? Absolutely, that's, that's what the hotel scene is about because she's, she's fine. Yeah, and that's italics. She's and, better than fine. Yeah, she's better than fine, right? All right, great, great pick again, Mike. Thank you for listening, everybody. Yeah, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. And please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate and review. Thanks a lot. Take care.